Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome. My name's Jesse. I'm the pastor here, and we're so glad to be with you this morning, not just to celebrate moms, but to even more worship the one who knew that moms would be a good idea. And to do that in part as we continue in our series on the book of James, our journey through the book of James in this series that we're calling A Theology for Life. Because at least according to James, theology, our understanding of God and the things of God, it's not something that, that just has nothing to do with anything. It's actually something that is meant to be worked out and worked into the very fabric of our lives. That's what we're looking at in this series. A theology is meant to be worked into the very fabric of our lives. Even as we saw last week, when it comes to our understanding of pain and the questions pain raises. Or, as we're going to see this week, when it comes to where we ought to go for our answers. So turn with me if you have a Bible and we'll pick up where we left off in James chapter 1 verse 19. And you can follow along with me as I read again from James 1 verses 19 to 27. This is God's word. It says, "Know this, my beloved brothers, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today that as James says, we would be quick to hear. Slow to speak, slow to anger, slow to deceive ourselves about who we are or what we need or where we ought to go to get it, but quick to receive what you say in your word. To receive even what you say through James 
that we would hear and do and in our doing reflect in part what you've done for us. In Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Where do you go to find the answers to life's questions? And since it's Mother's Day, I'll, I'll pick on moms first. Where do you go? For something simple, like just trying to figure out what you're going to do for the next kid's birthday. Where do you go? Or maybe it's the latest rearrangement of the furniture. Where do you go? Or what you're going to do next in your bullet journal. Where do you go? Pinterest? Actually, I was on Pinterest this week looking for ideas for Mother's Day. And I came up with nothing. Well, what about when the questions become more complicated? Like when your kid asks what the difference is between Great Britain and the United Kingdom. True story in our house. And one of our kids wants to know which one she was born in. Where do you go? Wikipedia? But there's some questions that are more complicated still, like when Jim Davis and I discovered roots in our sewer system this week. And I wanted to see if I was going to be able to do this one by myself. Or when the dishwasher broke the next day. Or the dryer stopped working the next or when our tires started leaking the day after that. It has been a terrible week. But where do you go? For me, it's YouTube, right? It is a do-it-yourselfers gift from God. <laughs> I do. I watch so many YouTube. I actually went to YouTube also to look for Mother's Day ideas and found more there than I did on Pinterest. But... It only goes so far because there are some questions that even YouTube can't answer. Some questions that Pinterest can't answer or Wikipedia because YouTube and Pinterest and Wikipedia aren't meant to answer them because they're questions that are supposed to be answered by the Word of God. And I'm thinking here with James primarily about the questions raised by the pain of life. Questions about God and the things of God and specifically about us and our relationship to him. Because just as much as James said in verse 18, that of his own will God brought us forth by the word of truth, James goes on to say in this passage today that it is by that same word that God intends to bring us up. Which is why when those big questions drive us to the word to find big answers, he says we ought to listen up and live it out. And that's what we're going to look at today, the place of God's word in the life of the believer and why when it comes to God's word, we ought to listen up and live it out. 
first that we ought to listen up. And here we're picking up in verse 19 where James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, my siblings under Christ, because this isn't just for men. He says, know this, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? For, James says, the anger of man does not produce or accomplish or work as an effective means to bring about the righteousness of God. So, be quick to listen. But the question I want to ask, the question for us is this, listen to what? Because too often when we read this verse, or or moms when we quote it to our kids, too often we do so almost exclusively in terms of listening to each other, right? As if it's at minimum a statement to the extroverts among us to the chatterboxes that they should be less chatty. Or perhaps better, a statement to all of us about something we never do really well, how well we listen. But again, almost always about how well we listen to each other, right? But that's not really what this is about, is it? about letting each other get a word in edgewise. It's really about letting God get a word in edgewise. Because that's the context, isn't it? That's where we're coming from in verse 18. That God brought us forth by the word of truth. So be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. To what? To the word of God. This is about especially in the context of this letter, about letting God be his own interpreter when it comes to the questions raised by the pain of life. That in the midst of the pain of life, when we draw all sorts of conclusions about the kind of God he is and the kind of world he's made and how much better it would have been if he had just waited to ask us our opinion about it. That when we're drawing all these sorts of conclusions that in times like that we would do better like we sang last week to judge not the Lord by feeble sense but trust him for his grace that behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face that blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain but if we let God be his own interpreter He will make it plain. That we do better to let God speak through God's word and just listen up. That's what this is about because this is what produces, verse 20, the righteousness of God. It's not listening to others. Communication skills are important and this is probably extended to that insofar as if we can't listen to each other, who thinks we're gonna listen to God? But this is about what produces the righteousness of God. This is our hope of being made righteous before him. That God would speak into our lives. And it's our hope of joining him to make this world right again. That's the other side of the righteousness of God. 
to, to make this world right again so that by the time we speak, what comes out of our mouths is what's already come out of his. Which is why it says in verse 21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And the image here is of putting off one set of clothes and of taking on another. Just like Paul talks about in Colossians and Ephesians and Romans. And Peter talks about in one of his letters as does the author of Hebrews. Which suggests that this was one of the dominant images floating around the early church for understanding one's ongoing relationship with Jesus. That a central part of following Jesus is about putting off this set of filthy clothes, constantly putting off this set of filthy clothes, Stained because of our, what does it say, our rampant wickedness. By the anger and the violence that drives us to, to try to put things right our own way. That we are to put off clothes stained by our need to always have the last word. Even if it's God's word that we silence in the process. That we are to put off, put away those clothes and instead receive the implanted word. Our four-year-old Eden is at a stage where she's constantly taking off and putting on clothes. It's dangerous to come into the house with a new bag of hand-me-downs or God knows what it's like if you bring something new in. Constantly taking off and putting on clothes is actually quite sweet. At least a half dozen outfits a day. And you never know what she's going to come down the stairs wearing. But that's not really what this passage is talking about. Because Eden changes clothes as a hobby. This is a lot more like Emmett, who changes clothes out of necessity. It doesn't matter where we're coming back from. He's filthy. That he has to change. That he can't stand himself. He has to strip down and jump in the shower no matter where we've been. But the other side of it is that it's not just for him. It's for everybody else. So if he wants to be in relationship with the people he loves the most, he's got to strip down, got to take a shower, and got to put on something new. And that's what this is about. You want to be in relationship with Jesus. Not that Jesus loves you any less. Filthy or not, you can be his kids. But you want to be in relationship with him. You want to be rubbing shoulders with him. You want to be walking close with him. You got to take off the old and put on the new. Put on a wardrobe woven out of the word of God. So too, our relationship with God. Which is why James says, listen up. 
because this implanted word by which God brought us forth, which speaks to all life's deepest questions of who God is and what God's like, of the world God made and our place in it, of what broke our relationship and what he's done to fix it. That this word is able, if we shut up and swallow it, if we just stop speaking over it, that it's able, having brought us forth, to similarly bring us up and to save our souls. Which, yes, is a, is a cosmic statement, a, a, an ultimate statement of, of passing from one domain to the next, but it's more than that too. That we're able to experience that in the here and now. You want to live in this world rightly, you got to live in this world God's way under God's king. And if you don't, you will not know what you were made for. So first, we ought to listen up. But second, we likewise ought to live it out. That there is another level to this that some of us never reach. We think we've got truth bottled up. We think we've got truth handled, boxed up. But there is another level to this because truth is not to be standing still. It's not meant for that. It's meant to have feet and hands and to be lived out. So like James says in verse 22 is why, like James says in verse 22, we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because as much as this word is about what God has done, it also has significant implications for what we are to do. This is not just something out there that we can just think of every once in a while and ponder every once in a while. It is something that is meant to imprint every piece of our lives. we're going to experience that righteousness of God in the here and now, that if we're going to know the salvation of our souls. Because to accept God's word means we accept not only what it says about God, but what it says about us. Which drives you, it will drive you to move because you cannot stay where it says you begin if you see what it says rightly. Except not just what it says about God, but what it says about us. Yet isn't that the rub? Isn't that what's so uncomfortable about God's word? I mean, if I'm just being honest, that's what I find most uncomfortable. What it says about me. There's some things about God that are hard to get over, hard to swallow. But compared to what it says about me, I can bank a lot on what it says about God. I could take great comfort in what it says about God. I could put great stock in what it says about God. But what it says about me, this is the rub. Not as much what it says about God 
what it says about us, that when driven to the word to make sense of the brokenness of this world and to find what God's done to fix it, that it's right then at that point that we also find the ugly truth that the brokenness isn't just something outside of us, but something we harbor within us. Within you. Within you. That is uncomfortable. That the anger might not always come out. But until God deals with it, and often, even after, it's always lurking inside. That we might not lose our temper, but the temper isn't lost. That the backbiting and backstabbing is as natural a reaction as we have. And that while we aren't always drunk, we could still be slaves to the drink, to our sexual perversions, our sexual addictions, to gluttony or laziness or anything else. I don't remember if I named the seven deadly sins. But just because it's ugly doesn't mean that we're served best by pretending it isn't true. That's where we want to run. That's most natural. To pretend it isn't true. But it doesn't mean that doing that we're served best because if we only hear and never do, only here and then stick our heads in the sand. Like James says, we deceive ourselves. You see it there? Not that we are deceived. We deceive ourselves. And the word here, deceive, is, is the word that was often used to describe fraudulent transactions. Where someone would fudge the numbers when it came to their financial situation. Often for their own benefit. Entirely for their own benefit. But James says that pretending like we're better off than we are isn't just wrong, it's idiotic. Because the only ones that we're defrauding are ourselves. It's like showing up in the food stamp line and, and pretending to be a millionaire and you just worked your way out of the food stamps. It doesn't make sense. And to hammer the point home, James compares the situation in verse 23 to a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Natural meaning disheveled, unkempt, the face he wakes up with. Who looks at his natural face in the mirror, who goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And I think here James is in fact talking about a man. Because really, what woman, even in the first century Palestine, would do this? What woman looks at her face in a mirror and forgets what she looks like? Seriously, just think about it. I mean, I know even if you have toddlers at home and you don't get to the mirror, once you do, eventually once you do, you don't forget what you look like. Even if the toddler prevents you from, from doing anything about it. But we as men, come on, it's very different. I mean, you can't even get a mirror away from a woman. 
like in some sense, like there's this, the, back in Exodus, right, there's the, the little, little story of, of people, you know, donating, giving their goods to Moses to build the tabernacle. It actually says that the women gave over their mirrors for the building of the basins. You know, it's like a sure sign of utter revival in that day. You can't do that, right? You can't get a mirror out of a woman's hand. At least I know that with my three like, or four ingrained girls, right? It just doesn't work. But for men, this is us. I walk out of the house daily and forget what I look like. I walk out of the house doing nothing after I look in the mirror. I walk back in the house later on. Kath is like, you went out looking like that? Did anybody see you? Because this is us. We willingly forget. Well, so too, James says, those who hear the word of God and do nothing about it. Like a man in the mirror who sees himself for who he is but does nothing about it. So those who see themselves for who they are in the word of God, but who'd rather pretend that they aren't as bad as the mirror suggests, who discontent with their appearance in the mirror, run around looking for better images of themselves. Is this not us? But what we don't realize is that God's word is the only mirror that shows us who we truly are. That every other image we find is just part of the funhouse of this world. It's just a trick. It's just bent glass. It's just making us look better than we are. You know, that's what department stores do. Did you know this? They use bent mirrors in the fitting rooms to convince you that in their clothes, you look better than you really do. Do you know that? Taller than you do, skinnier than you do, whatever it is, just to get you to buy their clothes. And the more expensive the department store, the more bent the mirrors. <laughs> and yet, the only one who loses is you. The only one who loses is you. Because you see yourself in the mirror. Then you drop the money on their jeans. But everybody else sees you how you are. James says, so too, the one who hears the word but does nothing about it. But the one who looks into the perfect law, verse 25, the law that perfects. Do you hear the echoes from what we looked at last week? The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law that gives freedom. Because freedom isn't about escaping the law, it's about which law you're living under. 
the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He will be happy. Not the one who buries his head in the sand because he doesn't like what he sees or bends the mirror to his own liking. But the one who perseveres in the one mirror that counts and allows the mirror to do its transforming work. You know, mirrors have a lot of power. Did you know that? We think of them often as passive items. But even in mythology, they were known as being transformative for the ones who wielded them, for the ones who spent their time in front of them. Which is probably why we keep them around today. Because they are transformative. In our homes or at the gym or around the fitness center. That's why they're plastered in front of you at the, at the, at the women's boutiques and the, and the hair salons and the barber shops. Because mirrors are transformative. Because we know that those who stand long enough in front of them cannot remain as they are. And I know this. I've been busted up enough in life. I've stood in front of enough mirrors with enough problems to know that staring long enough, I'm going to do something about it. I remember when Emmett was three, we were just about to go to a wedding. And if you don't know, I've busted my teeth quite a few times, and they've been fake for quite a while. But Emmett was swinging and, and grabbed hold of one of the monkey bars and decided to swing it into my face. And right before this wedding, chipped off a chunk of my tooth and made me look like my brother-in-law down in Ohio. But growing up in New York City, you can't look like that and you can't go to a family wedding. So I stood in front of the mirror and I eventually, I eventually went and I got, I was visiting my parents and I got out of the tool shed a file and I filed down my teeth. The power of a mirror. You stand long enough in front of it and you'll be driven to do something. Something radical that the mirror will have its way with you. How much more? So too. How much more, James says, the Word of God. For the one who hears the Word, who listens up, and likewise perseveres to live it out. But what does listening to the word and living it out look like? We'll leave it to James to get practical because this is how he brings this passage to a close in verses 26 and 27. When he says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. 
But religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That religion, which for James is simply an outer expression of an inner devotion. This isn't a negative term. That religion that is pure and undefiled, the way it's supposed to be, is this, to bridle the tongue, to visit the afflicted, and to keep oneself unstained. To bridle the tongue, to be slow to speak and quick to listen to the word. To not tell oneself a different story and thereby undo the one true story because the true story is better than any story you're going to come up with for yourself. We can stare at ourselves in the mirror in all of our ugliness because though our hearts are darker than we ever imagined, God answered God's answer is better than we ever, ever dreamed. To bridle the tongue. To visit the afflicted, particularly widows and orphans, who in no way in the ancient world could have paid you back. To visit the afflicted, who in no way can pay you back. And to keep oneself unstained. Because our lives, our lives are not meant to be colored by the world. To have its color rub off on us, to stain our lives, to dye our lives however it wishes. Because our lives are meant to be colored by something else. Or someone else. Our lives are meant to be colored by Jesus. To be stained. Whiter than snow. By the blood of the cross. Because he's the one who visited us. When we in no way. Could repay him. Not only not repay him but when we would cost him his life. And he's the one the true story is all about, which means that as much as we must come to grips with the man or the woman in the mirror staring back at us, the one we see in God's word and all of its ugliness, Our ultimate hope is that staring into that mirror, we will more and more come to reflect the better man, Jesus Christ, staring back at us even more. Our girls are at the age where they love putting on Kath's makeup. I never know how they get a hold of this. I cannot put it anywhere out of their reach. And whatever you may think of even our two-year-old running around putting on Catherine's makeup, it is something when you see her get up on the vanity with a lipstick in her hand and look at herself 
especially when Kath is standing by. Because she's not only looking at herself, she's looking at Kath. And looking at herself, and looking at Kath. And the power of the mirror has done something. Because while we have had a lot of run-ins with lipstick, she can actually put it on her lips now. Again, whatever you make of that. And yet, what a picture of the power of a mirror. How much more, though, the power of the mirror of the Word of God with a man staring back at us who is more than a man and will do more than any of us moms or any of us dads ever could to make his own into his image. Let me close, though, with a few encouragements. Started off by talking, and we've sort of taglined this series of theology for life, and I want to just sort of build off that for a minute, a theology for life, and just talk about how this theology extends, even from this passage, to our heads and our hearts and our hands. Let me encourage you first with regard to our heads that you ought to take time out of your life for the Word of God. To know it and understand it and dig into it and read it and reread it until you get it. Until you see yourself in it. Because we have mirrors all over this world. We are constantly looking at ourselves. But what we don't realize is that almost every mirror, every mirror we look in is bent to show us something that isn't true. How much more than the mirrors of life should we have in front of us the mirror of the Word of God? And so I'd tell you, I'd encourage you, plaster this all over the place. There should not be a a corner of your house where you can escape it. You should not be able to drive to work without the Word of God staring back at you. Not just the back of a cover, but put it up. Write it out. Plaster it in front of you. Because we have too many mirrors in this world trying to tell us who we are and where we can go to get what we need. And everything they're telling us is not what we need. How much more do we need before us the Word of God? Plaster it up. But going from the head to the heart, let me encourage you to plaster up not the ones that are easily stitched in a, what do you call them? Count a cross stitch or something. Don't just go for those ones. Plaster up around you, easy to find you, so you're stumbling into them again and again throughout the day. Plaster up the ones that hit home the hardest, that give the picture of you 
in its most honest form. I remember as a college student, I remember as a college student taking my, you know, computers were a you know, relatively new thing, personal computers, you know, they were getting there. And, and I had one on my desk, and I remember writing above it, study to show yourself approved, a workman not ashamed, who will rightly handle the word of God. On the thing that symbolized for a young guy the greatest temptation that breaks into your life unnoticed. I don't know where that came from. I can't tell you how many times that verse meant more than just what it said. Plaster around you the, the passages in the Bible that great on you, that you don't like because they're uncomfortable, because they say something about you that you wish wasn't true. Head the heart. Then move, though, to the hands. And here I want to talk just about, for a moment, about our need for community. Because it's interesting through this process that, that, that looking into the mirror, we see who we, we never would want to be, but who we are. And yet through the process of looking into the word of God, we're eventually somehow graciously transformed into someone we never thought we could be, into the image of the Son. And so too, in a way, we become mirrors of Christ. But that's not just for you. That's because we're meant to get into each other's lives. And the passage says that we're meant to be slow to speak, but not that we're not supposed to speak, because eventually we're supposed to speak to each other. That once the tongue is bridled and brought under the, the, the word of God, that we now speak what God spoke to us. And we become that for each other. And it's a two-way street. And you should do this. You need to do this. You need to do this if you've never done this in your walk before. You need to do it if you have a spouse with that spouse. And then you need to branch out and get other people around you that you say, listen to me. I am uglier than you want to admit. And you know it. And I need you to speak into my life. And God willing, I'll have the guts to speak into yours. That you cannot, are not meant to walk in the dark alone. And too many of us are. But this is a word about the word that is meant to cover all of life. Meant to cover all of life from our heads to our hearts and out through to our hands and every part of life. Because this is the theology for life. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I ask that you would do just that. I ask for some of us sitting here, that is an unthinkable thought. That we would, of our own will, ask people to get into our lives and the thick of it, the mess of it, and invite them to poke around and prod around and speak to us what we most need to hear. But I pray, God, that you would even now, as we're looking at this part of your word, that you would even now be renewing us into the image of your Son, that the power of the mirror and what it shows us about who we are and our ugliness before you would likewise begin to show us who you intend to make us into. Jesus Christ, the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.